Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, The phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> On June 24th, 2021, at approximately 1.30 in the morning, a 12-story residential building with 136 units partially collapsed. The search just finished this past week, and today we're going to talk to Chaim, who flew out there to aid in the efforts. Chaim, welcome. Our trip to Miami was a response to the horrible Surfside building collapse. So let me back up. My name is Chaim Nerich. I am with CCL Shul members. Pleasure to be here. We do synagogue security in the local Chicagoland area. And so we have a chat and we're all sitting around, you know, feeling horrible for not only the potential survivors, but the families, you know, have to sit around waiting for their loved ones to either be found or, you know, alive or dead. And also to the incredible force that was there, try to help them recover the batteries. I was told that there was approximately 500 people in shifts, of course, 24-7. So we started a, a dinner campaign. So we raised enough money for approximately 700 dinners for the survivors. I represented CCL Shul members. I went down for the weekend, July 4th, for a couple of days and volunteered. It's, it's hard when you see that, sit at home and say, geez, I wish I could help out. I wish I could help out. I just looked, found a good flight and boom, I went out there. It was an incredible experience. People from all over. I was with the chef, Jagger Gorn. He runs a, a not-for-profit kind of like a food bank in uh, Montreal. So he came there. That was an absolute honor working with him. Definitely an experience. And then occasionally you'd meet somebody that you'd work with and you'd ask, you know, anyone was there? And they, one person said, yeah, I, I'm missing two friends. You could tell they're kind of still like in shell shock. And this is, I'm sure they wanted to help out. This is the way of coping, doing something about it. So it was nice seeing that as well. There was a young gentleman, I'd say about his 30, maybe 30 or so. And I guess he was the only one that saw the building collapse. I guess he was meditating on the beach and saw the building come down. And this was about 10 days after it happened. You could tell he was still shell-shocked. I and mean, he was going around with his notebook and just taking names and writing things down. And I really felt for him. They said at the beginning, there was more therapists there than and survivors, which I guess is nice to see. When you got there, did you have hope still that somebody may be alive? I was kind of listening to the Israelis. I guess he said like two weeks is like the cutoff. I think they found a cat to the rescue. And then the following day, I was able to uh, say goodbye. Some of the Israelis left, I guess maybe they were their engineer department. I, I speak for everybody when saying you make us proud. Yeah. Yeah. Talk was, to me about what he was like. I just picked him for that long, but uh, I know on his TV interview, he described the bodies as people. Interview, he said, you mean 12 bodies? He said, no, 12 people who unfortunately are not alive. So he sh showed a lot of respect, humility, pride, honor. It was a real honor meeting him. So I'm sure, you know, mentally they were hoping to find people, but then that, that had been hard going back to Israel, not finding anyone. The one part of the story that was, I feel like the hardest for me was that after the building fell, someone tried to make a phone call multiple times to be found. Kept on ringing. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that. Yeah. I think they made like a total of like 12 phone calls. Yeah. The phone calls eventually stopped after like yeah. 12 hours. The fact that they weren't found and 
just to think that they were alive enough to do that yeah. is just to me like the worst way to go yeah i'm sure a lot of people perish pretty quickly though but yeah it's not not much left of villain if that were god forbid to happen to your family like how do you even know how to navigate that was traumatic obviously you know if somebody's sick at least mentally someone's prepared for eventuality but something like this where you're talking to them one day and then next day you hear stories um i think there was one story of a young family and they came back home after something and then the air conditioning didn't work and she says i'm not staying here so they moved out they went to a hotel that night that's kind of freaky just goes to show you when it's your time it's your time when it's not it's not so i love what you here. said about coping is doing something have you always felt like that? Yeah, that's the worst thing. It's <laughs> sitting around. It's it's a curse because it's so much easier just to sit around with your head in the sand and saying everything's fine. One of the most powerful experiences of my life, I think, being there. Wow. De definitely top ten. So okay, so what are what's another top ten? Oh, of course, the birth of my son, a couple of near life experiences, which I, I won't get into right now. <laughs> yeah. No, now you gotta tell me. A couple of close incidents. Were you a pilot? Yeah. Really? That always gets you thinking. You had a close call a couple, where you almost got a in a crash? Ones. Quick story is I was supposed to take an aircraft and last minute got switched to someone else. The gentleman that was supposed to take it, let's just say he's, he's not as thorough as checking as I was. And I was checking the fuel and I was a little more conscientious. I'd smell the fuel and the fuel smelled like kerosene, and which is, it was misfueled, long story short, with jet fuel at the time was a propeller airplane. And I was fine. I'm like, okay, I'm not going. The gentleman that was supposed to take that airplane was freaked out because it was his plane that he was supposed to take and he wouldn't have checked it and probably would have crashed, you know, into the houses right, right after takeoff. I'm a believer when it's your time, it's your time. It wasn't my time and it wasn't his time. <laughs> oh my God, that's really scary. Like yeah. it's the same thing with the crash, you know, like people would have no idea that either one of those things could happen. Yeah, I had an engine failure, I landed in the Calsec channel. Wait, what? Where did you land? Uh, the Calsec channel, which is south of Midway airport trying to get out of the airplane actually i'm swimming to shore and i had a nice little conversation with, with god i said you know i did i of course i believed in her. i did you know so some people need miracles to believe in i said you know not that i don't appreciate what you did because i did but i didn't need this I, you didn't have to show me that you're here <laughs> my humor with god at the time like like tevi would, would talk to god on the roof i had a nice conversation with god not that i didn't, don't appreciate because you know i do oh my god did you have to land in water yeah. Is that so, the but, only time that's ever happened? To me. <laughs> yeah, like how frequently does that kind of thing that, happen? That, not that often. Do you but, really uh, think it's safer to drive a plane than a car? Well, statistically, commercial aviation, the, the most dangerous part is to and from the airport. So when I was flying commercial, I flew for Continental Express. That would spook me, not the flights, it would be the driving. I do a lot of driving now. That's that's scary. I think I've never had an accident in my life. I'm a very safe driver, but it's always somebody smacking you from behind or something like that. My rabbi would say, you, you do your best and God will, God will do the rest. That's a good attitude, I guess, to take in life. How did you get so into safety? It fascinates me. I mean, you know, statistically, what are the most dangerous parts? There's most dangerous parts in aviation, most dangerous part in driving. I'm riding motorcycles too is uh, six blocks away from your home. You have the uh, get me homeitis, they call it. Were you a careful kid? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not over cautious. I'm just, you know, you just have to stack the odds in your favor. That's all. 
And what about you as a dad? I've done silly things. As, you know, I got hurt as a kid and playing with fireworks and stuff like that. And no, you learn. You got 10 fingers. There's a reason for that. Don't make the same mistake twice. Yeah, I totally missed the pilot thing. That's so cool. So how long were you a pilot? Four or five years. Really? That's not very long. Lifelong dream. But, you know, there's, there's a difference when you fulfill your dream and then now it's a career. It's hard being away from home. And when you first start out, the money's not very good. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. Enjoyment. Is it rewarding? No, I don't think so. It's more of a lifestyle, actually. Hmm. It really, it's not a not a career. It's a lifestyle. You either like it or you don't like it. Do you was, still go to like air shows and stuff? Yeah, Oshkosh has the largest air show in the world. Actually, you meet people from all over the place. There was actually an Israeli delegation there, and they're they're usually there. I could see that because they have like a uh, international tent, and they have different countries and people write notes and stuff like that. We almost had a almost had a prayer service at Oshkosh. We did we didn't make we didn't make the tent though. But that would have been fun. Oh, that's cool. And do you still fly at all for fun? I'm still a flight instructor, but I just don't have the time. The older you get, the less time you have, right? Yeah. Do you think that that's a skill that like a lot of people should learn? It's a passion. If you have the passion for doing it, then I'll do it. It's expensive, very time consuming. (laughs) Expensive habit, huh? Very expensive. (laughs) Okay. So tell me more about CCL. Concerned Citizen League, we show members. We are an organization out of uh, Chicagoland. Our purpose is to promote safety, provide support, and train. Basically, we're here to support people that have a concealed carry license. We don't teach concealed carry, but if they choose to do that, we'll we'll make them a, a more safe. Our secondary goal is really to help provide safety in synagogues. Uh, we do that through standardization of training. The concealed carry course is 16 hours, which is very minimal. We're fortunate we have phenomenal instructors. Right now, we have a it's called SSO or Shoal Safety Officer Program. And we take the rabbis from the show will recommend a candidate. We take them. We put them through a vetting process. So the rabbis were concerned. Is this person mentally fit, you know, and stuff like that? So I use a third-party administration, and uh, we put them through a vetting. So they have to uh, verify their license, of course, a background check, online psychological tests. They also have to sign a no alcohol where they're they're not going to drink while they're on duty. And then they have to take a drug screening test after that. And then once they're approved with screening, then we take them through a course. So it's a, it's a year long course. We have eight separate courses that we give them. Medical is a real big one. We just had a two weeks ago, we had a CPR AED class. Typically that's the licensing is certification is good for two years, but we want to do it every year because you forget. I, I forget. Our synagogue security director, Carmi Lawrence, great guy, very knowledgeable. He'll be teaching with somebody else security training. That's extremely important. So somebody comes through the doors and he's mentally unfit, he's delirious, he's drunk, he's on drugs, or he's there to cause some trouble. What, what do you do with them? How do you spot them? How do you spot two weapons? What do you do if he has a two weapon? How do you remove them from the facility? Extremely, extremely important stuff. So we're, we're doing that. We're opening that up to the community as well. So we're, we're there to help. I mean, we see, when we see a need with the community, we, we get it going. Wow, that's amazing work you're doing. Yeah, what needs have you seen? Just a carjacking. I feel like it happens very frequently in our area. Just in the area, yeah. Break-ins. Now that people are getting out of their their COVID hiatus, the things are starting to happen. It's all this pent-up energy, I think. Yeah. Are there any tips that stick out in your mind of things that, you know, practical tips of things that we should do? Situational awareness is probably the biggest thing people could do for themselves. What does that mean? Get off the phone. How many times have you, you're in your car, you almost hit someone, they're walking across the street and they're on their phone. That's a great example. That's what bad guys are looking for. Kenosha a couple of days ago, a guy was at a gas station, a guy came right back and shot him in the head, assassinated basically. 
Then he went somewhere else. You know, I'm sure that guy wasn't looking around. They say, keep your head on a swivel, always look around. That's crazy, though, that he actually pulled the trigger. I mean, I don't know if that could have been yeah. avoided. No, I think that was assassination. He shot him back that. I feel like I'm much more paranoid now as a mom than when I grew up. Kids, yeah. Yeah. Even my daughter just learned how to ride her bike and there was recently a bike accident. Horrible. A child a week ago got run over by an off-duty police officer and yeah. I'm like, you know, she's still wobbly and getting her balance and might not be able to slow down as well going across an alley or crossing the street on a one-way and I'm like I want to make sure I'm close by but she's <laughs> 10 years old you know at 10 years old I was going around my own block right, time right. and time again but I'm like do, Chicago is a different story do, do you take her to a parking lot that's parking a good idea helmets are important too she has a helmet on yeah I yeah I, I don't think I did that growing up yeah. so yeah my dad hit his head he passed away it's very easy to get a brain injury on it happened to your dad yeah well um, oh my god you know you, you, you've seen that commercial right with an egg falling on the, on the sidewalk it's not much different oh my god that's yeah. terrifying i'm so yeah, sorry so helmets yeah do you feel like every home should have a gun no unless someone's properly trained or you have a mentality too to protect someone by protect your family by taking someone's life that's a that's a very big tough decision that's not for everybody and if you can't do that then you should call on in the house too, it's dangerous too, because a round could go through, say like 10 layers of drywall. So you have to be prepared. And that's where training comes in. That's all about training. When did you get into guns? Maybe in my thirties or so. As, as a kid, I always treated it with respect. I didn't let, let my son, I guess I let him have toy guns, but he couldn't shoot, shoot the dog with it. He couldn't shoot me, he couldn't shoot the dog with it. Yes, it's a toy, but still. I mean, even Nerf guns hurt. Yeah, no, we, we won't do that. You'd shoot things outside for targets. But that's where, you know, these, these kids have these these videos, right? And, and they get desensitized uh, and all the shooting and all the gore and all the brain chemistry, you know, going off with all the shooting is, you know, I don't get that out of it. I also feel like it's discouraged in school. Like in the 50s, kids would go to high school and they have gun clubs. They'd have gun in their locker, gun in their pickup truck, go hunting and we didn't have that. I mean, my kid got in it's, trouble for drawing swords on his artwork in school. Yeah. And he was really into Star Wars. And so I brought cupcakes with lightsabers to school. And they said that no is a weapon. Oh. I was like, I guess I'll serve the lightsabers that's, at home. That's funny. I remember my son. I'm glad you think it's funny. He was very disappointed. <laughs> okay, awesome. Well, is there anything upcoming that you would like to promote? Next week, we have our greeter training. It's a four-hour class. It's specifically for synagogue greeters. So if they're on part of the safety team, then we'd love to have them. It's going to be a great, phenomenal class. And then after the holidays, obviously the following month is the whole month of the holidays. So after that, we'll be doing a Stop the Bleed Again, CPR, AED. We don't, you know, that's open to the public. We'll, we'll see, you can see that on Facebook and stuff like that, uh, all the social media. Strongly recommend that. Probably if people are concerned about synagogue safety, probably the most important thing they could do would be to take a stop the bleed class. It's a 90 minute class, 90 minutes of your time can save lives. Anything you'd like to ask my dad? Meaning of life. <laughs> That's a good one. I loved connecting with you. Thank you cool. for taking the time. Thank you. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. This is a meeting, by coincidence, with a gentleman named Chaim, which means life. And his question is, what is the meaning of life? The type of work that he does coincides with the answer. The meaning of life is to see if 
we have the choices in front of us to try to better not only ourselves, but to better humanity and to show a little compassion for humanity and to think that we can become better people as time goes on. Through the test of time, through the generations, we've made plenty of mistakes or a history of really atrociousness. And yet during times of disaster or times of need, look how people can also rally together to help each other in time of need. Maybe that's what we're really here for, is to see what we can do to better ourselves, better our families, but to see if we can make humanity a more compassionate, a little bit, have a little bit more of an ideal place to live and where we can live safely and where we all have a chance to grow and to have a networking of people together where we take humanity to higher levels. That's what life is all about. And it's not talking about it. It's being a participant. It's being part of the action. It's to be, be a doer. Don't talk about it. Jump in there and do it. And if there's a disaster that's occurring, just say, oh, what a shame. Get in there and help. Do something. And isn't that the story of Chaim? Is where he's part of a group that does exactly that. Whether it's help training people how to use guns safety right, or whether it's a disaster if a hurricane came up, or if a building collapsed in Florida. Get yourself a ticket. Get down there and see how you can help. This is a wonderful mitzvah and a wonderful push towards building humanity's rating higher. And that's what we all should be doing. Look how we take some of the disasters that are out there and realize how precious life is. We need to protect it and to enhance it. We're only here a very short period of time and anything can happen. Well, isn't this what happened even during World War II? Marvin, as a teenager, 17 years old, went and enlisted in the service, to serve his country, when freedoms and the rights of people, and you had annihilation going on of the Jewish people. It's one thing to stay under the covers or stay home or listen to the radio and wish you could do something. And it's another thing to get in there and do something about it. That's, I think, also a lesson for every generation, is that if we really want something done, we have to roll up our sleeves and get in there and do it. And uh, there's so many people that have excuses today of why they can't accomplish anything or they can't do it. And it's the only way you have a chance to accomplish anything is by rolling up your sleeve and getting yourself involved. I would like to extend my deepest condolences to the families, friends, and neighbors of the victims. This story weighed heavily on my heart. If you would like to join me in donating to the cause, you can go to supportsurfside.org. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com.